From the University of Cambridge, this is Election, the politics podcast. My name is David Runciman and we've been coming to you each week here from my office in the Cambridge Politics Department to talk about what really matters in this campaign. In just over a week, we'll have a result, finally, and we'll be here to try and make sense of it, however long that takes. Before then, more on some of the big themes of the campaign. This week, my guest is the senior American diplomat, Richard Haas, who's worked closely with four American presidents, from George Bush Sr. to Barack Obama, and served as the American envoy to the peace process in Northern Ireland. I'll be talking to him about whether this election matters in Washington and where foreign policy has been in our campaign. He tells me why he thinks an EU referendum is the wrong thing to be worrying about. It seems to me a colossal distraction from the real problems or challenges this country faces domestically to the problems in Europe and indeed the world. We'll also be talking to some Cambridge students about how this campaign has been for them, what's grabbed them, what's annoyed them, and why are young people so much less likely to vote than anyone else? Stay tuned to find out. But before that, I'm joined by our regular panel, Helen Thompson, an expert on economics, Finbar Livesey on public policy, and Chris Brook on political theory. Last night, we went to see a revival of David Hare's play, The Absence of War, at the Cambridge Arts Theatre. The play is based on Neil Kinnock's failed election campaign of 1992, which led to a famous victory for John Major's Tories. The play describes the birth of the new Labour way of electioneering. These clips are from the 1995 BBC version starring John Thor, or Inspector Morse, as the fictional Labour leader George Jones. The plan is like last time. Each morning's press conference establishes a theme. Yeah, we can see... Tuesday, health. Wednesday, education. Thursday, health. Friday, health. Lord, do we ever do anything else? Everything's here. List of key campaigners, when they speak, when they move. An appendix of bull points. Notes on vocabulary. All the words we can't use. Oh, I like this one. Never use the word equality. The preferred term is fairness. In the end, though, it doesn't work. Labour loses the election because its leader never quite gains the confidence of the British people. All right, I'll do what you ask of me. I'll go around the country and tell everyone that you're a very fine man. It's not that the party don't believe in you, you know. I say this in love. I smell that you don't believe in yourself. And the play ends in something close to tragedy, as the defeated leader has to hold himself and his party together in the face of humiliation. I have to think of the party. The party? My God! And where have we landed the party that isn't tonight? It, that isn't it, finally. Malcolm is the next leader this party will have. I have to hand him the party in good order. Good order! Good order! And now what? Now this man will inherit. You sit there and face that without wanting to get up and seize him by the throat? Yes, I do. Oh, I can just see it. You're going to support him. I know you, George. You will offer him support. You call this strength? It's the most miserable weakness. You will give him a loyalty he never gave you? I have to, yes, because I believe in the party. It's all we have. It is the only practical instrument that exists in this country for changing people's lives for the good. 
And if I'd followed my quarrel, if I'd split the party in two, had screaming headlines, Labour's leading figures fall out, my God, what vanity, what self-indulgence, the very self-indulgence I condemn in everyone else. It's a play with plenty of echoes for the current campaign, though not all of it rings true for today. Helen, were there echoes for you? I think in one respect that there is in the sense of uh, the Labour leader, in this case, the Kinnock character, who faces the fact that he has brought his party to the point of being electable, except for the fact that he himself is not electable. And that is a, a tragedy for that person. And you can see an outcome for Ed Miliband in which he's made considerable personal sacrifice in order to try to become prime minister. And if he doesn't become prime minister, then it would be a personal tragedy for him. What was striking for me was the fact that the play takes place against the background of a, a sterling crisis. Indeed, that is what actually precipitates the election in the way that the, the, the story develops. We are having an election against the background of what seems like serious economic problems. But actually, in this sense, it's crisis free. And actually, the parties are in a position where they can make pretty wild economic promises, as we've seen over the last few weeks. That's a million miles away from the economic and political context in which the 1992 election took place. That's absolutely right. But a lot of the commentators in this election still think we're in something like 1992. The Fixed Term Parliament Act has had a transformative effect. It's fixed the date of the election a long time in advance. And that changes the dynamics of the election. It's not an election that's called on the Prime Minister's terms. And the Fixed Term Parliament Act will also change decisively the dynamics of coalition formation, of the hung parliament, of what happens after the votes are counted. A lot of commentary seems to think that things will be more or less like they were in 1974, after the first general election in that year. But they'll be very different. There are new rules in place. The rules may not last for long. Parliament may decide to repeal the Fixed Term Parliament Act. But until it does that... The rules of the political game are different. Because in 1974, there was a second election, and everyone understood that if the first election produced an indecisive result, there was always the option to try again. It's not clear we have that option now. That's right, that the 1974 election, the second election, was called when Harold Wilson asked the Queen for a second general election. That's the particular option that the Fixed Term Parliament Act removes. It's not that a second election is impossible. A second election can happen either if two-thirds of the new House of Commons votes for it, which is extraordinarily unlikely, or it can happen if a government falls on a motion of no confidence and no government is able to command the confidence of the House within a 14-day window. But the dissolution is then automatic. Nobody chooses it. Parliament in the past, the decisions of the monarch were, hypothetically, were plausibly quite significant. That's changed too. One way in which the Conservative Party are hoping that this is 1992 all over again, and this is described very accurately by David Hare in the play, is that a standard classic Tory election campaign, which was run in 92 and being, is being run today, is essentially to say to the electorate, do not trust that man with your money. There's a line in David Hare's play where the Labour leader is reminded that he mustn't ever give people the impression he will be controlling their money because that's where they don't trust him. 
Finbar, does does that echo hold for you that this could be a repeat of Major versus Kinnock in that the Tory line is very similar? It's don't let that man get his hands on the purse strings. They're attempting to make it about stay the course and that we are the party you're going to carry through, finish the job and be the people who will keep things safe. It's not directly one personality against another. It's not Major versus Kinnock. It's more a team. It's more identified as party. You see more of Bowles and Osborne. You see more of the other players in here as well. But Do you, tour- because I don't think we have seen a lot of Bulls and Osborne in this election. Actually, I, I think it is still quite presidential, despite the fact that neither of the two presidential candidates are particularly impressive. But I'm amazed, actually, they've used so little of the teams on either side. Well, I'd actually disagree, because uh, it would be more presidential if Cameron was more visible. Miliband is much more visible than Cameron. And it came slightly to a head for everybody commentating on this election on Sunday when Ed Miliband was on the Andrew Marr show and was up against Boris Johnson. And people were looking at that sofa and going, why isn't David Cameron here? Why is it Boris Johnson that's in this seat? And it seems to be that there's been a significant decision made that they don't want Cameron in any uncontrolled situation. They don't want him in any headheads. I mean, we can go back and talk about the debates again. Let's not go back and talk about the debates again. Let's not. So that's why I say I don't think it's a one-to-one personality in the same way that 1992 was. But yes, in terms of the strategy and tactics, it is the Tories saying, we're the safer party, we're going to protect you, we're going to make sure you keep your money. But you're absolutely right. Also, we're in this moment of a weird double play. It's a crisis, but it's not a crisis. We've fixed the economy, but there's still more to do. we fixed the economy, but don't you dare trust these people with it because it's not that fixed exactly. that you can trust them. And so the, the recent uh, numbers on GDP growth, which came out for the first quarter of this year, which are worse than people were expecting, which so an economy is still growing, but growing slower than people had hoped. Both sides jump in and both sides are spinning it in their way. And of course, for the Tories, it's saying... We fixed it. We haven't quite fixed it. So it's still looking a bit precarious. Don't take a risk. Whereas Labour is saying these guys never fixed it. There is still a lot of change necessary to make this a fair economy or an economy that works for everybody and all the standard lines. So when you want to make that contrast in 1992 and say it's about very, very large figures. I don't think that holds true. But about the thematic, I think that that does. And Helen, the other thing about the 1992 election is that The Sun famously said it was The Sun what won it because the Tory press went very, very hard against Neil Kinnock. The famous headline on the day of the election, I'll paraphrase it, but with the last person in Britain, please turn the lights out if this guy wins. The Tory press this time is also playing a similar 1992-ish campaign strategy, demonising Ed Miliband, not quite to the extent I think that Kinnock was. Again, do do the echoes hold for you or does it feel like a fairly tame reflection of what happened in 1992? The sun's not going to be what won it this time. Absolutely not. I think that the, in some sense, the media were almost acting as a parody of the way that they behaved in 1992. And somehow it's been caricatured to such an extent that actually it loses all influence. And the media did win the Conservatives in 1992 election. A lot of Labour's approach to communication came, the whole notion of tight discipline and spin. Ultimately, it was very simple why the Conservatives won in 1992, and that is the majority of the people didn't want Neil Kinnock to be Prime Minister. And I don't think that they had that view because anyone in the media had it. He simply had not in the way in which the play showed in some sense tragically proving himself capable of convincing people that he was prime ministerial. And of course the other thing that has changed is that the Labour strategy after that election was specifically not to get on the wrong side of Rupert Murdoch. Ed Miliband is not just 
on the wrong side of Rupert Murdoch, he's quite happy and proud about that because Rupert Murdoch is not the power that he was in 1992. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, New Labour got to the position where it had Rupert Murdoch on side. And in terms of New Labour's, I think, at the top self-understanding of why it was successful, that was an important part for Blair and perhaps Brown as well, of why that they were able to communicate so much more effectively than they'd done in, in the um, Kinnock era. Ed Miliband doesn't want to be in that position. And it's not clear that he's really losing anything. The phone hacking scandal has meant that Murdoch and the News International Press um, more generally simply are a big negative for many voters in a way which wasn't the case back in 1992. Thanks to Helen Finbar and Chris. Now it's time to hear from some students about how they're viewing the current campaign. Some are disillusioned and some aren't. We sent our intrepid reporter Lizzie Presser out onto the streets of Cambridge to find some of the students who really aren't getting a lot out of politics at the moment. No, I'm not. Because I believe that the state is fundamentally violent and that we should be spending our political time trying to work for a world without leaders rather than choosing between four or five poor choices. Um, Seems pretty pointless to me. It's not like it's going to affect me at all. Politicians getting power, they're all the same, really, aren't they? The issue I'm feeling is that the main three political parties are far, far to the right wing of where I personally am. Like, the Greens are the party that are even vaguely as left-wing as me, and a lot of their manifesto is a bit pie in the sky. So while I'd like to vote for them, I sort of feel like if they did get power, they'd probably mess things up because they haven't really worked out the practicalities. Technically, I am voting tactically. It doesn't quite tally with who I feel... I am. I normally do things because it feels like the right thing to do. My heart tells me to do this. So I guess going against my heart to kind of agree with what it really feels at a deeper level. It would be easier if the, like, they created policies less on like party lines. Like I feel like they, the division is really strong. I mean, same as in America, so that like if they're right, all their policies just have to fit with that. Everything has to be either super right or super left, which is why like people in the middle ground are like sort of like constrained like the way I am. Because people are like, are you Labour or Tory? There's no middle ground. And I'm like, how about Lib Dem? And they're like, no, Lib Dem's terrible. And I'm just like, okay, so <laughs> there isn't really anything. I don't think it's worth voting if you're voting for the lesser of evils. I'm not going to conform to something I don't really believe in. I mean, like, I just find all the candidates at the moment care more about their job than the country. And I don't feel like I should be willing to sacrifice my vote for, for someone who doesn't care, you know? I also talked with three first-year Cambridge politics students, Cleo Newton, Kia Ashwood-Stowe and James Reesley, who's from Australia but can vote in this election, about how they viewed the current state of British democracy. I started by asking them if anything had really stood out in this campaign. To be honest, it was quite interesting watching Nigel Farage speak for the first time, watching his rhetoric and thinking he's either you know, a, a madman or, or a genius. And I could understand why people would be persuaded by that and why people who felt disenfranchised, disillusioned would want to grab onto what he was offering. He would be delighted to hear this. I'm not saying that you're a convert, but he'd be delighted to hear it because, as he said in the debate... He likes to portray himself as the outsider. So, Kia, what about you? You've grown up in Britain. You're, you live in Edinburgh. Yeah. Uh, you went through the Scottish referendum. And actually, this yeah. isn't your first vote because you did vote in that referendum yeah. as well. The figures that we have suggest that 
the turnout will be lowest among your age group. So yeah. people between aged between 18 and 24, on one survey by the Hansard Society, it says only 16% are certain to vote, which does seem very low. The estimation of how many are likely to vote is around 45%, which is still probably 20% below the actual turnout. Do you have a sense of what the politicians should be doing differently? Yeah, is that the lack of feeling that what your vote actually means anything. Um, I think that's probably something that people very keenly feel. And then combined with the fact that maybe the political class that's in Westminster seem very detached, not only from the general electorate, but also in age-wise from my generation, that's a contributing factor that puts even more distance between because- them. I'm not that old, but from my generation, they seem quite young. <laughs> um, in that, a lot of them are in their early mid forties. After all, Ed Miliband. If, if David Cameron loses this election, he'll probably be retiring from politics at the age of forty-eight, which to me seems young. But to you, they seem old. Not necessarily old, but not of our generation. I don't see anyone on the news necessarily that's my age or slightly older. Therefore. I think that can add distance. What, what do you think, Cleo? You're more politically engaged in that you have been involved in the, lo- the local election here in Cambridge. But has the campaign itself, as a consumer of politics, has the campaign itself delivered for you? Are you getting the messages that you want to hear from the politicians? If you're looking at particularly the younger generation, we've grown up with you know, social media. Everything's rapid. We, we expect transparency. We expect politicians to deliver in a way that perhaps older generations don't you know social media generally you have online e-petitions you have websites like change where daily you can kind of have you can sign a petition that can go through parliament i think the spectrum has condensed to a stage where we expect so much change we expect kind of everything to be instantaneous and the sensation of clicktivism where you know you just politics can be immediate and it makes everything just seem a bit less worthwhile I guess. I'd say it's quite dismissive and bordering offensive to kind of negate the people who don't vote as just lazy. There is a huge contingent of students who, who still feel that they there's no point to voting and it's not because they're lazy and it's not because they're not attuned to politics they're in fact very in touch with what's going on but it's simply because this relationship between parties and generally students the parties would say well look they're never appealing to students and that's because they never vote and then students would say in return hang on a lot of the parties aren't providing anything for us because they know that we're not especially large contingent who votes so something has to give it currently doesn't look like the politicians will and students right now a lot of them are too pissed off so probably won't either and you're left in a deadlock of non-voting which russell brand is just simply appealing to and whether he's right or wrong it's wrong to just dismiss non-voters james we come back to you one of the uh, remedies that people sometimes suggest for this sense of disengagement is to make voting compulsory. And you come from a country, you're entitled to vote in this country. Mm-hmm. You come from a country, Australia, where voting is compulsory. Do you think it would help here? I mean, in Australia, we also have non-fixed term limits, and that creates problems because we have an election every two and a half years. And that is perhaps why we have a certain kind of apathy that you might not have in the British system right now. In terms of whether or not uh, electoral reform, generally speaking, to have compulsory voting is useful when you have apathy, I think it is. I think it does change your political climate in a way that engages people more, but also changes how 
parties engage with the system because when you have a system or when you have parties competing not for whether or not you are going to vote but for your vote that means they approach the game of politics differently i think it means you have you know slightly less negative politicking where you're trying to alienate people. I think you have slightly less attempts to just aggressively mobilize the base and encourage, you know, the um, rural old white voters to go door knock uh, for, for you for a month. I think what that does to the political landscape is ultimately a good thing. One consequence of trying to squeeze seven parties into a two-party system is that people often have to make choices about tactical voting because in the end, in any first-past-the-post system, only one person is going to win in each constituency and all the other votes won't count. What's your sense of that, Clea? Do you think that in the end, tactical voting is the rational thing to do? That's what people should, and that's how people should be thinking in a first-past-the-post system. There are many people who do feel that's the only option, but I personally think it's a very cynical way of doing politics and you're no longer voting for what you believe but what you think has got the best chance of winning and even in Cambridge there are the Conservatives who are telling their fellow Conservative voters to vote Lib Dem just to keep Labour out and I, I think it's awfully distressing for our politics and I just I think that that's going to inspire even more apathy because how can you continue voting on a moral level if you you can't, you know, vote your own beliefs through. James, do you think it's distressing or do you think it's the rational thing to do? Well, my experience with tactical voting is from the recent elections in my home state, Queensland. Uh, basically, there was a, a massive Tory swing, like the last election, so like two elections ago. And the election that's just happened, Labour won again, or there was a, a massive swing the other way. And the relevant thing there was that you had lots of the left aligning and tactically voting to kick out all of the very senior senior Tory ministers in the Queensland cabinet. So there were people who were Greens voters or you know, other party voters who said, no, we're going to vote for Labour because we can actually kick out the person who was Premier or deputy premier like that's tactical voting that was something people were making a calculus on but it's actually a really good thing that happens so maybe it's not always the best thing to do but it's definitely a choice people should consider and it, it gets outcomes which is why i think it's a good thing and people shouldn't exclude it from their their range of choices do any of you think that any of the seven party leaders has had a particularly good or a particularly bad campaign uh, the person who is thought to have had a great campaign, actually, is Nicola Sturgeon. Kia, does she speak to you? Yeah, I was going to say that I think she has done very well out of this campaign in a way that Alex Salmon never did, in a way of appealing to voters across the country. But to add to that, I'd say um, a lot of the reason she's done that is because she's really toned down the kind of independent sentiment. I, I was with some people who didn't know that she was in a very prominent figure on the independence campaign because she wasn't mentioning it so much she was mentioning issues of equality and I personally think that was slightly false. Does it make any difference to you the last election you might not remember it you were very young the prime ministerial debates were three men behind podiums if it was the equivalent now Clegg, Miliband, Cameron it would be three men of the same age because we had a seven person debate suddenly three women were on the stage did that help? Did it inspire you at all? Or did it look token, James? It would be naive to say that's tokenistic. I think it's fantastic. And I think politics, which conveniently is just full of Balliol educated PB boys, isn't a very good politics. Um, and it's not a class that we want. Australian politics doesn't have enough women in it. It's a travesty. Only one of the parties has pre-selection quotas. You did have a woman prime minister for three years, though that wasn't a total successful improving yeah in the same way that Thatcher was also a woman but that doesn't mean that we are anywhere near political equality so there's a long way to go but it's really excellent moves in the right direction Kia what do you think it's it's two ways of seeing it either the main parties look if anything even more samey and male as they ever have 
But then you, once you open it up to the other parties, it suddenly starts to look more diverse. So which do you think is the real story? Well, I think they're probably both the real story. I mean, potentially the, the three main parties are still much the same, but the fact that you have these other parties getting represented, getting some airtime, I think that is good because it can show you a bit of di- the diversity that does exist more broadly. Clear? Inspired? No. It's very encouraging to see so many women on the panel. The classic photo where at the end of the debate, the three women were arm in arm together and Ed, Ed Miliband just had to look on, you know, in case he kind of triggered any kind of strange sexual harassment thing by kind of joining in the hug. It's really lovely to say that there are women there. But firstly, the reaction still remained, oh, Nicola Sturgeon has very nice hair today. And um, oh, I'm not sure about that plied woman, you know, just not sure about the outfit. There's still a huge difference between like just nationally anyway in in British politics compared to somewhere like Sweden, where 45% of their candidates are women, or successful candidates. There's still such a long way to go. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now for a view from outside the UK. I talked to the leading US diplomat Richard Haas, who's currently president of the Council on Foreign Relations, the most influential of all advisory bodies on international affairs. Last week, Ed Miliband made a brief attempt to inject some foreign policy into the campaign with his attack on David Cameron's handling of the aftermath of the Libya intervention and its knock-on effect on the tragedy of would-be migrants drowning in the Mediterranean. Miliband's speech dominated the news cycle for about 24 hours before we moved back to domestic matters in this most parochial of elections. So I started by asking Richard Haas whether people were paying attention to our election on the other side of the Atlantic. I hope it does not dismay or depress you unduly, but uh, I don't think Americans are hanging on every vote. It hasn't really broken through the American political consciousness. Individual policymakers uh, no doubt have their individual preferences. I always did when I was in government, but I kept them to myself. And in fact, we should remind people that there's an election coming up later this year in Spain, which may have far-reaching knock-on consequences in a way that our election is unlikely to. Exactly. And this election hasn't gotten all that much attention in the media. It hasn't been portrayed as one which is somehow a major historic turning point. For all I know, it could be, depending upon the outcome, if there then is a referendum on Europe, if there were to be one, how it would come out. So it may have consequences that are are historically significant, but it hasn't been teed up that way in the media, way behind everything from what is going on in the Middle East to the Iran negotiations to the latest in Europe with Mr. Putin or Grexit. Uh, or what have you. And one thing about this election is that in many ways it's it's the vote between two other votes that might be more significant. One which has happened, which was the Scottish referendum, and one which, as you say, might happen, which would be a referendum on a possible British exit from Europe. Did the prospect of the breakup of the United Kingdom focus minds at all in the United States? Not a whole lot. I think it would have been a different reaction had it happened. That would have gotten people's attention. But simply as a possibility... 
it didn't attract a, a whole lot of uh, attention. I think you know if if we come to the point where Britain is voting on whether it stays in the European uh, Union, that will get attention in the United States, certainly in economic circles, financial circles, and also in, in foreign policy circles. But I'll be honest with you, again, I don't think people are going to be necessarily waking up on Main Street America, and this is going to be at the top of, of, their, of their consciousness. And for the people who do pay attention if we get a referendum on Europe, would your sense be that the idea that Britain might leave the European Union would look odd? Or do you think people might understand why Britain feels that its place is best served outside of the EU? The official response would probably be it's a national decision for the people of the United Kingdom to make. If there is a statement, I think there would be a statement in favor of Britain remaining. My own personal view is, given all the problems there are in this world, it's hard for me to see why anyone thinks that Britain doing that would make it any easier to deal with those problems. It, it seems to me a colossal distraction from the real problems or challenges this country faces domestically to the problems uh, in Europe and indeed the world. So I don't welcome it by, by any measure. I also believe that it doesn't do anything to strengthen the Atlantic Alliance or the U.S.-European relationship at a time that it needs all the strengthening it can get, given the, the host of challenges we face. So put me down as a traditional Atlanticist. And this election has been fairly parochial scene from the inside. So as we hear from you... It makes you feel better. Most elections tend to be fairly parochial. Exactly. That was going to be my question in a way. You've told us that no one from the outside cares that much, certainly not from across the Atlantic. And then we're looking at our own domestic problems in a very, very domestic setting. Your presidential election is just getting going. And US presidential elections are more outward looking in the sense that foreign policy does play a role. How to deal with Putin's Russia will be an issue, not maybe not as important as domestic politics. In this British election, it may be a reflection of the British people's sense that their power to do anything about these things is limited. But foreign policy is not being discussed. Are you surprised by that at all? Not a whole lot. One of the things we could learn from you that we would do well to adopt is the brevity of your electoral period. I am envious. <laughs> You, for us, this has been a long one, by the way. But this is so short by American standards that, uh, again, it, it's admirable, is all I can say. Uh, we still have a year and a half to go. You know, what, will foreign policy play a central role? So much of that depends upon what two things. First, the domestic situation. Traditionally, if the better the economy, some people will say, let's go for continuity. It tends to increase the emphasis on foreign policy because that's an area that there's more concern about. It also depends, obviously, about the state of the world. If the Middle East continues to boil over, if Mr. Putin decides that what he's done so far is not bad enough, if there's a crisis, say, in Asia with North Korea or China and Japan or India and Pakistan, if Venezuela implodes, I, I can go globetrotting here, events can force their way on the uh, agenda, particularly if, say, some dramatic event were to happen on the eve of a presidential debate that could focus attention on it, or if an event were to happen on the eve of the election itself. You know, all these things always take place in context. And the length of the campaign creates more room for that. In our campaign, something has to happen pretty much a month before the election to impinge. You've got, as you say, a year plus we, in I which events can take their toll. Yes, it's a version of what Mr. McMillan once said, events, dear chap, events. And events can have, uh, and will have, a consequence. But also, there can be self-created events. Candidates can say things, not say say things. There's a million things that influence the trajectory of a political campaign. 
international events are, are simply one of them, but all things being equal. I would simply say, and here we are just weeks into it, a year and a half away from the actual vote. My sense is that international events and foreign policy will probably play a larger role this time around than in some recent elections, simply because, one, the economy is somewhat improving, even though a good chunk of Americans are not participating in that as much as they would like. And secondly, there is the not just the perception, but the reality there is a deterioration in the world and that uh, things are not what they were. They're not as uh, good as they were or nearly as good as we would like them to be. There are any number of threats. There are, there are things to be concerned about. So my guess is when people go to the polls this time, there will be a greater sense than is sometimes the case that they are electing not simply a domestic president, but a commander in chief and the, the leader of American foreign policy. And in Britain, I'm afraid we're going to have to return to Britain. One thing that does still hang over this election is Iraq only at a distance, but the current British Labour Party and Labour leadership has wanted to distance itself from the Blair years, primarily for that reason. Tony Blair has played a fairly limited role in our election campaign. He gave one speech warning about the risks of an exit from Europe, but that's what he's been limited to. And again, my sense is that's something that looks somewhat different from the United States, in that Blair's reputation in Britain at the moment is such that the Labour Party do not see him as an asset. But am I right in... The United States, Blair is still seen as a very well-respected statesman. Oh, if Tony Blair changed his citizenship, he could do quite well in American politics. The gap between how he's perceived here in, in your country and how he's perceived in mine is quite dramatic. And the Brits, I know, can't understand why he's so beloved in the United States. And the Americans, I know, can't understand why he's so <laughs> We're divided wide. by a common figure of love or hate. I, I'm on the fan side. I, I, I know him quite well from my time in government. Uh, we work closely on Northern Ireland, where I think he made a tremendous positive difference, and we, we work together subsequently. So I'm definitely on the fan side, but whenever I uh, make that point here, I'm, I encounter a degree of pushback, which I think is unfortunate, because I do think that uh, whatever you think about Iraq, he did many things that were admirable in his tenure as prime minister, but there you have it. And in a way, one of the consequences of this election for the Labour Party will be to discover in a couple of weeks whether distancing themselves from their most successful election winner in their history was itself a successful election winning tactic or whether it was a mistake. And if it was a mistake, we may see some revision in people's attitudes to Tony Blair. Those who were associated with the war in Iraq came in for quite a lot of criticism, I think, for, for fair reason. I disagreed with Prime Minister Blair on uh, Iraq, just as I disagreed with President Bush, the 43rd president. You know, but then for a lot of Americans, or at least certainly for a lot of Republicans, the debate now is less over whether it was right to fight the war and more over the position of the Obama administration to pull out all the troops. And there's a view, a widespread view, that had troops remained, the situation in Iraq would not be nearly as bad as it is. In any case, now we have several thousand Americans back in and an advising capacity. And there's all sorts of new questions about what American policy should be toward Iraq, though in some ways it's now been superseded by the debate over Iran, which at least for the next few months and possibly longer will parallel the campaign. Indeed, it's quite possible, short of the unexpected, but the two I sound like Don Rumsfeld here. The two known knowns of the foreign policy debate of the American campaign will be Iran 
and what to do about the nuclear agreement and, and much else. And now there will be trade, where there's several big votes coming up on American uh, potential trading agreements, first with Asia, conceivably with Europe. And that is a debate that divides both parties, and it could only get passed with massive Republican support and a minority de Democratic support. And it remains to be seen whether the president can cobble together such a coalition. So does that make Putin a known unknown? Because you'd have thought he, unless something happens to him, he must be a feature as well of any presidential campaign okay. in relation to whether people are willing to take a hawkish line on him? Only up to point. If it's simply the status quo extended, sitting on Crimea, messing around in eastern Ukraine, I don't think there's that much to say about it. I think it tends to go to the fore, however, the debate, if he should either move elsewhere in Ukraine, quite possibly he might, or if he were to do something, say, in a country like Latvia, then this question of what to do about Vladimir Putin could very much be, be front and center. And finally, if we could come on something you touched on a moment ago, which is Northern Ireland. You were very closely involved in the Northern Ireland peace process. You were back there relatively recently in 2013. In this election, one of the very distinctive features of this election is that in the mainland UK, Northern Ireland does not feature at all. No one talks about it. It's more or less disappeared as an issue for the rest of the United Kingdom. It's left to take care of itself. But on the other hand, Members of Parliament elected in Northern Ireland may well play an absolutely central role in creating a government in Westminster. And I'd love to just get your take on that, because there is a kind of dissonance here that people aren't thinking about Northern Ireland at all in the one election where actually Northern Irish politics could play an important role in the future of UK politics. Uh, you're right on both points. People here either think Northern Ireland has been resolved or hope it is. At times when I'd come through London in 2013, when I was brought in by the parties in Northern Ireland to help them mediate, several of my British friends, even people quite active in the foreign policy world, were surprised that this was taking place. So I don't know if, if it was hope or, or what, but there was a sense that Northern Ireland was something they could safely forget. Alas, not. And there's still, I think, the potential for problems there. And lots has not been resolved about the past. We still have all the problems with marching or parading, with flags and emblems. In some ways, lots has been resolved, but lots has not been. But you're absolutely right. In a very close-run British election, whatever the numbers are, but a number of the members of the DUP, Principal Unionist Party, and possibly uh, even Sinn Féin. There's some talk about people in Sinn Féin taking up their seats in Westminster. To, to remind people, Sinn Féin traditionally have not taken up the seats that they have won. Absolutely. But this time, possibly, possibly. will be different. And in a very close-run election, small parties can have outsized impact. I would think that if that were to be the case, these uh, parties from Northern Ireland would obviously bargain their support for a would-be government, in part on the government's policies or commitments vis-a-vis -vis Northern Ireland. So, again, we could see Northern Ireland, not in the way, thank God, not in the way it used to be front and center here in terms of violence, but in the, ten, in the sense of political significance and maybe looking for certain things from, from Westminster or 10 Downing Street. So, yes, it's quite possible that, that we'll see a little bit more attention given to Northern Ireland. Indeed, there's those who think that one of the reasons Northern Ireland politics seem a bit stalled is some of the players there are waiting to see just what leverage they may have after the British elections. You know, I would never suggest such a thing. 
but uh, I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility. And this is obviously a difficult question to answer, but as you say, maybe people in the mainland UK are a little bit too sanguine about the fact that Northern Ireland is a problem that's gone away, and there are ways in which it's a problem that it won't return to what it was, but a problem that could come back. Do you think the main Northern Irish parties having leverage in Westminster is likely to help resolve existing problems or that it might exacerbate them? It might actually be irrelevant to them. It's quite possible that if they were to use the leverage, it could be for transfers or certain types types of funds to deal with welfare reform. You know, all politics is local. So my guess is it would not resolve the fundamental questions of, of dealing with the legacy of the past, or again, these questions of parading or flags. I actually think that devolution of these decisions to Northern Ireland will continue to be the, the thrust out of Westminster or, or, or out of 10 Downing Street. I think it would be much more going back and forth about funding. And Northern Ireland has what I would describe as a rather heavy, a more critical word might be bloated, public sector. For various reasons, the various parties want to see heavy funding coming from Westminster into uh, Northern Ireland. And I would expect that if they were in such a position, they would obviously want to see funding be of a certain scale and direction. It might not exacerbate the sectarian divisions, but it might exacerbate the bloating on that account because <laughs> leverage can be used. I mean, it's unlikely to be a disciplining factor in would, public spending in Northern Ireland. It certainly would not be. The question is whether if you could settle some of the financial issues, that could help you cobble, to cobble together a deal that would deal, that would allow you to contend with some of the political issues. I don't know. Uh, you know there's, there's always hope, but then there's also history. Thanks to Richard Haas. Now back to our news panel. This week, the famous US analyst Nate Silver, who predicted correctly the last two US presidential elections, has been broadcasting his predictions for our election, which foresee a very messy outcome. On his current forecast, no likely block of parties can get over the magic 326 line to hold a majority in Parliament. Tories plus Lib Dems plus Democratic Unionists plus UKIP doesn't get there. Labour plus SNP plus Plaid Cymru plus Greens plus SDLP doesn't get there. In fact, a Labour-based alliance of parties only has an outright majority in the Commons on these forecasts if you add in Sinn Féin, a party that traditionally does not take up its seats in Parliament. Sinn Féin and Gerry Adams, the party of Irish nationalism, holding the balance of power. Chris, how does that grab you? Even if the mathematics work in Sinn Féin's favour so that it does hold the balance of power, I don't think the Sinn Féin MPs will take their seats at Westminster. It's so deeply ingrained in the tradition, in the mythology, in the legend, the heritage of the party. It would be such a massive break with party tradition for Sinn Féin to take their seats at Westminster. I think if push comes to shove, they'll maintain party tradition. They won't go to London. Uh, Finbar, you don't think they might be tempted because this, after all, would be the first time in which going to London would have some real political point for them in that they could, as Richard Haas put it in his interview, exercise some leverage. They'll be tempted. And there is a generational aspect to this as well. What you've seen through the troubles and into the peace process is the evolution of the politics in Northern Ireland through the aging of the generations who were fighting through the troubles. I think, um, though, tempted is all they'll be, because it would be the end of their ability to function within that political space. And they would no longer be a viable party retaining the ground that they've held all the way through their history. Helen, what about on the other side? I listed the various blocks of parties that could get either side over the line. 
Can the Conservatives rely on the Democratic Unionist Party? That's the party that was founded originally by Ian Paisley and is the biggest unionist party, will have the largest number of seats from Northern Ireland in this coming parliament. I don't think that they can, and I don't think it would be a good idea for them to do so anyway if the Conservative Party had not won a majority of seats in England, because otherwise their argument about Labour and the SNP is blown to pieces. But I think in some sense the more interesting thing is would the DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party, actually consider the possibility of supporting a Labour coalition? If you look at the Democratic Unionist Party, they are pretty clearly an anti-austerity party, is they want more public expenditure. It's quite hard to see how that's reconciled with at least the Conservatives' formal position, despite the promises of more public expenditure on the health service and tax cuts that the Conservatives have been making during the course of the election campaign itself. Now, whether it's the case that the Labour Party would actually want such a socially conservative party as the Democratic Unionists in a coalition with it is another matter. Because in Northern Ireland, the big story in this election campaign so far has been about homophobia, gay rights, stuff that really would not play with whole swathes of the Labour Party. Absolutely. But if you look at it from the Democratic Unionist Party's point of view of wanting more money spent on Northern Ireland, it's a better bet for them to join a Labour coalition than it is to join a Conservative coalition, at least in some respects particularly if the SNP is successful in pushing Labour into a more anti-austerity position. So they could ally with the SNP on the anti-austerity question, but of course the problem is they are unionists and the SNP want to break up the union. Can they be in a coalition with the SNP? In some sense, no. But at the same time, if you look at what Nigel Dodds, the Democratic Unionist leader, has said in the last few weeks, he has attacked the Conservative Party for attacking the SNP too much. So he's not playing a straightforward unionist argument about this. I think that the Democratic Unionist Party has options uh, at this point, and it would be extremely, uh, extremely bad mistake for Cameron to think that he could simply rely upon them. One final question. We don't want to spend too much time on this because I think the whole political class has spent too much time on this man already. But Ed Miliband, we now know, has given an interview to Russell Brand. A clip of it was played yesterday. We haven't seen the whole interview yet. It'll come out sometime today after we've recorded this podcast. The interesting question, in a way, there's no way this was an impulsive decision by Ed Miliband. I imagine they'd been strategizing it for a while, and they decided in the end to take what might be the risk of putting him on a sofa with Russell Brand. Does it look like good strategy or bad? I can't make my mind up on this, but a little part of me thinks it might be a mistake. Finbar, does it look like good or bad strategy to you? Um, it gives you too many opportunities for somebody from the Conservative Party and Conservative HQ to take clips and use them very sparingly. The other reason I think it's a mistake is that this is for Russell Brand. The fact that we're talking about it and the fact that Russell Brand would sell more copies of the book is great for Russell Brand, but it doesn't add anything to the election. Obviously, the reason Ed Miliband is doing it is that Russell Brand has 9, 10 million Twitter followers. Many of them are young. Maybe all of them are young. Some of them are students. And there's a group of people who aren't planning to vote in this election. And if they did vote, Ed Miliband would win. Can he actually reach them this way, Chris? I think it's conceivable that it might make a difference. And I think that's absolutely the reason he went and did that interview. I think Brand's principled non-voting position is under a bit of strain. You do talk to young people who like an awful lot about Russell Brand, but still on some level think that... The idea that the answer involves not voting is a bit crazy. So I do think of the kind of people who will get the links from Brand's Twitter feed, some of them will be people who might just cast a vote when they otherwise might not have done when they see that interview. 
if Miliband hasn't messed it up. Maybe Russell Brand is actually going to tell people to vote for Ed Miliband, but that would be a bit like Sinn Féin taking their seats in uh, the House of Commons. I think the, the brand of Russell Brand couldn't survive that kind of vault farce. Helen, do you think there's anything that Russell Brand could say that could help Ed Miliband, or is almost anything that he himself says more likely to put people off? I think that in principle he could help uh, Ed Miliband, as Chris says, with younger voters. He is he is popular amongst people of, of that generation, or at least some of them. The problem is, is obviously for every person that you appeal to with Russell Brand or anything Russell Brand says in quasi-support of Ed Miliband, there's somebody else who remembers something about Russell Brand that they find obnoxious that gets even more put off voting for Labour and Miliband than they uh, might have been before. It's a risk, and I think what it suggests is, is that the Labour leadership is not as confident as they outwardly look about the way that this election campaign is going. Thank you to Helen Finbar and Chris, to our guest Richard Haas, to our very articulate students Cleo Newton, Kia Ashford-Stowe and James Reesley, and to our production team of Hannah Critchlow, Francis Durnley and Lizzie Presser. To get in touch with us, just use the Twitter hashtag electionpodcast. Next week, I'll be talking to David Howarth, who was the Liberal Democrat MP for Cambridge from 2005 till 2010. And I'll be asking him what it's like to win an election, what he learned during his time in the Commons, and why he quit. Come back next week for more. I'll also be asking our regular panel what they actually think is going to happen next Thursday. My name is David Runciman, and this has been the Cambridge University podcast, Election. Election.